And today is the last sermon in our FIRE series. We are going through our core values and also the core values of the church that we are a part of called Partners in Harvest. It's a big organization. And they're the FIRE values. Now, F stands for Father's Heart. It's the Father's Heart of God. I stands for Intimacy. R stands for Restoration. And E is Extending. Extending the Kingdom of God. Now again, I maintain, we have finagled these words a little bit so that they spell fire, because I've tried to mess with it and I spelled farce, and that's really good. And I also changed some other things and I ended up spelling curse, which is even worse. So you know Curse is bad, farce is bad, fire is great, you know, river of God had too many letters, so we picked fire. So today is evangelism, extending the kingdom of God. We care about this. We just talked about church as kingdom. And in that message, I talked about what kingdom means and some different ways it can be used in the Bible. So this isn't that message. What we're talking about today is really what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. And it's what we are supposed to do. Go to the end of the book of Matthew, the very, very end of my favorite book of the Bible, really. Maybe you're not supposed to have favorites, but I do. I like Matthew. And Jesus says this. He's about to be zapped up into heaven. And these are his parting instructions. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, guess what? I am cosmically the boss. And now I have something I'm going to tell you to do with all this authority that I now have. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call this the Great Commission, and if you have been in church for any length of time, you have probably heard this. If you've been in church for a great length of time, you've probably heard this almost too much. You know, it can become a snoozer, almost. And you think, yes, Jesus says, go out and make converts. Got it. Go out and get people to believe in Jesus. But you'd be wrong. Because Jesus is saying to make disciples, not believers. And the first thing I want to talk about when we talk about this today, about extending the kingdom, is that we are going to do that by making disciples. Disciples, just like Jesus said, are people that are baptized and then observe everything that he has commanded us. Amen. If we go to the book of John, in John chapter 8, we see something very similar. And it illustrates this point, and I think it's very, very important. Jesus has just argued with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Okay? And the Pharisees are like, who the heck are you? Where the heck did you come from? And Jesus says, well, and he just kind of plays with them a little bit like he does. He's like, well, I'm not here on my own authority. I'm here on my father's authority. And like, who's your father? And he's like, well, if you knew the father, you would know me. And he's like pressing their buttons, you know what I'm saying? And he ends up telling them, I'm sent from the father, which is clearly God. And they're like ready to pick up rocks and kill him. And he's narrowly avoiding that. And he's telling them, I speak and act. Everything I do is right from my father. I only ever do what he told me. By the way, I'm of heaven and you're of earth. You're of your father, I'm of mine. You know, and I'm going to do the will of the one who sent me. So pretty hardcore stuff. I came from God, I'm here on God's business, I'm doing God's work. And if you believe in God, you'll believe in me. So then we get something very interesting. In the middle of John chapter 8, you can read it, it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many people have ever heard the, set, the phrase, the truth will set you free? Probably not in its full context, right? We hear it all the time. I'm reading this in my NIV study 
Study Bible that I got from the seminary. And I look at one of the notes for John chapter 8, verse 31, and it says something really weird. I'm going to show you what it says right here. Believe. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him. The, the guy kind of conjects his own opinion and he says, well, the word believe here seems to mean a formal profession of faith, but their words show that they were not true believers. Wrong! Look at the verse right before it. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He drops the mic, and then it says this. As he was saying these things, many, what's that word? Believe. Believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. You could not get much more clear than that. These are Jews who believed in him. And what did they believe? They believed that he came from the Father. They believed that he was here on the Father's business. They believed he's doing what the Father wants him to do. I mean, do they have the full picture? No. But guys, that's pretty darn good. I mean, Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet. They're believing everything they can believe. And he says to the people who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. He is drawing a line, not between fake believers and real believers, but between believers and disciples. There is a difference. Famous verse in the book of James, what does it say? Just to do, put me on the spot. And then you cover three, two, one. Didn't expect that. That's fine. I'll erase that from the recording. I promise. I'm, I'm, really I'm sorry. It says, James says, guys, you believe. Well, that's great. Even the demons believe, and they're afraid. It's like, well, okay, so belief isn't enough. What's enough? Well, Jesus says, abide in my word. In this context, the word, the logos of a teacher, is the totality of his teaching. It's saying, I want to think like this teacher thinks. I accept your worldview. I accept the way you say things are. And not only do I accept the way you see the world, I'm going to do what you said to do. I accept your logos. I accept your word. To abide in it, that word can also mean to live someplace. I think it's the Greek word meno. Like if you ask somebody where they meno, you ask them where they're living. Where's your home address? Where do you always go back to? And he's like, you stay right here in what I'm teaching you. Does this sound remarkably similar to Jesus' command in the Great Commission? It's almost like they're talking about the same guy. It's weird. It's weird. It's almost like the Bible agrees with itself. So he says, abide in my teaching, do what I told you, abide in my philosophy, the way I see things, and you'll know the truth, and it'll set you free. The reason this guy thinks they're not true believers in my NIV study Bible is because of their response. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free? And then these guys start to argue with him, but what are they arguing with him about? His word, his teaching, the way he sees the world, the stuff he's trying to tell them. So he's saying, you believe in me, that's great. Now do what I say and, and really believe what I'm telling you to do. And that's the part they have the problem with. Jesus is drawing a line between believers and disciples. The goal is to make disciples. Today I want to talk about how we extend the kingdom by making disciples. Amen? Amen. Could I just stop right there after that? Is that pretty good? Yeah. Okay, yes. excellent. The offering box is in the back. It's a nice night. No, I'm just kidding. I'll try to make it quick. All right. What in the world does this look like? Pastor Anthony, I'm all kinds of like, oh, i got to check my Bible now. Does it really say that? It totally does. I promise. But what does it look like to make disciples? What does that process look like? Are there snapshots in the Word that I could go to to see this played out? Why, yes, my friends, there are. It looks like Acts chapter 2. That's right. Bam. Acts chapter 2. The believers are gathered in an upper room. Jesus has been gone about 40 days, I think. 
He said, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit gives you power. They're together, they're praying, and all of a sudden they get whacked with the Holy Spirit. They look around, they see things that look like fire sitting on top of each other, you know, and they go, they go kind of crazy. They start speaking in other tongues. They start acting so weird that the crowd of people that's there, all the Jews from all over the known world have come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They see this ruckus and they think they are drunk out of their minds at nine in the morning. And they're like, what is going on? And then Peter apparently composes himself enough to give, I mean, for Peter, a pretty clear-headed explanation of what's going on. <laughs> so he does that, and in one, mornings of work, one morning work, 3,000 people get added to the church. Bam! Now that's awesome. I've got some bad news. It also looks like Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 tells Paul's story in Ephesus. Jerusalem was the main city of the Jews. Ephesus was also a main city in Asia. Paul is there for three years, slogging along, facing resistance, dealing with pushback from Jews, from Gentiles, from the guys that make the idols. He has all kinds of conflict. This is, this is a heck of a slog, guys. So one is the gift, okay? And one is the grind. But both are ways we can make disciples. And I want to compare and contrast Acts 2 and Acts chapter 19 for the rest of this sermon. Because sometimes people just get whacked with the spirit, man. And they're like, I see everything clearly, I believe, and they never look back. But does anybody have that person in their life, family member or friend, where you're like, you just don't understand why they are not saved, but they are so not saved for a long, long time, and it is driving you crazy? You're not doing anything wrong, man. That's the grind. Okay? Even the Apostle Paul dealt with this. So we're going to analyze what they have in common. Sound good? Mm -hmm. We're going to go quick. I promise that. And then we'll see. We'll see how long it takes. <laughs> All right. On. Common elements. Number one is explanation. Like I said, in Acts chapter 2, everybody thinks they are drunk. If, if it happened today, they'd be like, these people must be fresh out of Colorado. They are, they are whacked out of their minds. <laughs> so here's what happens. Listen to this. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The whole crowd there for the feast, guys. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So the crowd hushes up and they listen to this guy. They're like, what the heck is going on? For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's about nine in the morning. What are you doing about the eighth hour of the day, Pete? But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He goes on to explain what the prophet Joel said about the Holy Spirit coming. First, I want to tell you this. He's explaining what is happening in the moment. Something weird's going on. It needs to be explained. We are a charismatic church. Sometimes, especially in charismatic churches, Weird stuff will happen. Can I get an amen from somebody who sees weird stuff in church? Amen. Amen. Come on. Sometimes people are damaged by the weird stuff that happens in church. I think sometimes this happens because there isn't a Peter-like character to stand up and say, hey, this isn't what you think. This is what's going on. This is from the Lord, and this is how, and this is why. This is what God is doing right now. This is how he's operating. Yeah, I know it looks nuts, but guys, follow me. We can, we can get on the same page. But Peter's... Peter's able to do that, right? Because he can say, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And those people in the crowd are like, oh yeah, the prophet Joel. And then he continues, and he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And everybody in the crowd says, oh yeah, yeah, those wonders and works that Jesus Christ did, that, that God did through him. Yeah, we do know that. And then later in his sermon, he says, for David says concerning him. And the whole crowd is like, oh yeah, David, back in the Psalms. Yeah, I remember that Psalm, I learned that in school. And then again later he said that this Jesus God raised up, and of, and of that we are all witnesses. And everybody in the crowd says, oh yeah, yeah, that's true, that Jesus guy, they did. They said he raised from the dead after three days, that's crazy, I, I've heard that story. And then he, he gives the coup de grace, this is it. At the end of his message, he says, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Taking for granted that the whole crowd is going to know what in the world he means by Lord and Christ. And this works. Taking all that stuff for granted works. And the crowd says this, and this is Acts 2, 36-37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We're willing to do anything. Takes for granted that they know Jesus. Takes for granted they know Jesus was sent from the Father. Takes for granted that they know what Lord and Christ means. Takes for granted they know the Old Testament, Joel and David. And he takes all that for granted, and it works. Why does it work? Because in this place, they have the same religious background. They have the same culture. They have the same worldview. They all learn the same Bible books in school. They knew the lingo, they knew the terms, they knew the current events. So Peter stands up, and it's like this fuzzy video of Jordan slamming Pippin's missed free throw, which I absolutely love, so I used it even though it was foggy. Look at that, right off the line. Bam! 3,000 people saved in one day. Gets up, preaches a message that takes less than five minutes to read. If you read it through your Bible, they all fall on their faces, and they spend the rest of the day probably dunking people in the Jordan River. That is a, That's come on, for a day's worth of work? That's pretty darn good, man. <laughs> Meanwhile, in <Aww>. Ephesus. <laughs> You're and, and then we have Paul. Paul does some explaining too. But Paul is not talking to Jews coming to Jerusalem. Paul is going to talk to Greeks in Ephesus. This is his first encounter. This is Acts 19, 1-2. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. <coughs> He's probably not going to have the same charmed experience that Peter had. He's like, You know what it says in Joel? And like, oh yeah. And David? Oh yeah. Jesus? Oh yeah. No, we don't even, there's a Holy Spirit? What is that? This is hard. He is going to have his work cut out for him, guys. Check this out. This is Acts 19, 8-10. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the, what's that word? Disciples. Thank you. Disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. He continued for two years. Wow. Do not grow weary in well-doing, the Bible says. 
Sometimes it's the gift, but sometimes it's the grind. There are some churches in this country that blow up to a couple thousand really quick. For some reason, I've heard that in Texas, it's just super easy. It's ridiculous to start a megachurch. Maybe not easy, but comparatively, it's like you trip and you have a megachurch. <laughs> and then there are other places like Japan where you go and you try real hard and you too can have a megachurch, except in Japan, a megachurch is this. This many people. And if they're all Japanese, it's hugely successful. And not people that have moved to Japan that have some sort of religious background. Even churches in Japan are full of, full of Filipinos and Brazilians. You can, you can ask Daniel about this. Man, that's the grind. You go to Texas, and maybe you get the gift. Bam! But a lot of places are the grind. So if you feel like you are in a place in life, your family members, your co-workers, wherever you find yourself, is more like Paul's experience than Peter's, you're in good company. You're not doing anything wrong, probably. Take a deep breath, okay? But for those of you, only those of you who've been Christians for a while, I won't say what a while is, but a while, I, I want to ask you some questions. Are you ready to explain? Are you ready to explain stuff? Because explanation is critically important. All right, let's look at this. Why do Christians believe there's only one way to go? Why did Jesus have to die, and what did it accomplish? Why do we do communion? What is its significance? What is holiness? Why is sin bad? Why is there evil in a good world? I'm not going to preach on these things. We should all know, at least a little bit, the answers to these questions, because this is the kind of stuff that people will ask you that needs to be explained. Christians do weird stuff. Don't they eat blood and stuff? Are you ready? You got your, you got your communion theology all down? I heard you, like, eat God's flesh. Is that true? Like, well, what about Buddhists? Aren't, aren't they going to heaven, too? Aren't all religions the same? This is the real world, is it not? Come on. <coughs> The first thing I want to say that these two places had in common, one was massively successful, one did a good job, Pete, he had a tough later, and one was a grind, but they both had to be ready to explain. So be encouraged if what you're doing is taking a while, but if you've been a Christian for a while, it's time to start digging in and getting the answers to these questions so that you can be prepared. Amen? Amen. Amen. Step two, it's going to go a little quicker. Action. You need to know stuff to explain stuff, but you also need to do stuff. In both of these stories, we have preaching and teaching. Now, who opens their mouth and actually talks? It's Peter and it's Paul, right? Okay. Who has to go down 3,000 people in one day? And they ask what to do, and he says, be baptized, every one of you. Well, they had to do that. I mean, there's 11 of them. I don't know if they recruited other baptizers, but that's a heck of a lot of people. You got Somebody had to walk to the edge of town. Get waist deep in the dirty, nasty river and dump people for God knows how long. They actually had to do that. And then, they didn't, weren't just trying to get believers, right? They're trying to get disciples. Disciples flocked together in this thing called church. So then they had the hard work of establishing a healthy and vibrant community. This is active. This is doing stuff. If we want to extend the kingdom of God, we have to be ready to act. Not just ready to know stuff. And then, there's this M word that just keeps popping up in the Bible and still should pop up today, and that is miracles. Miracles. You know, I told a story a couple weeks ago about when my back was healed. And that was like the most dramatic thing I've ever experienced. It was like a miracle. Uh, I, I'm going to take time to tell a story about a vendor I had at Walmart. Okay? How we doing? 
Good. Hey. Excellent. We're way past the halfway point. Just relax. You're, you're good. You're fine. It's not 100 degrees. We're cool. So, my, my buddy, I won't name his name because this is going to be on tape, but he was one of those guys where it's like, why aren't you saved? Why aren't you a Christian? Seriously. He's just, he was just like a genuinely good guy with a genuinely good heart. Saved, you know, not saved, but came from a Christian home, knew all the stuff, but just, he just wanted to go out and fish with the boys and drink beers and, and just, just, he was a good man, you know what I mean? But he wasn't a Christian man and it just killed me because we talk about it and he's like right there, he just hasn't jumped in. You know what I mean? Well, one day, he goes out fishing, and not in Lake Michigan, in an inland lake, with some of his friends. He, he took his buddy out, and they both had their toddler kids, okay? And it was false. They were in boots and jeans and hoodies. His buddy falls out of the boat, and it's a foggy morning, and my buddy, I keep trying to not say his name, like, they paddle over to him. My buddy's trying to get him back in the boat, and the guy's freaking out because he can swim, but he is drowning. He's wearing layers and big boots. I mean, he's going down. And he does what drowning people do. He pulls my buddy Boomer into the water. Boomer, oh, I said his name, crap. Anyway, I'm sorry, Boomer. I love you, man. So he's in the water now, and he's like, oh my God, I'm going down. He's dressing Larry, he's got big boots. Their toddler boys are screaming in the boat. And they're like fighting. They can't get back in the boat. They can't save each other. They're thinking, we're going to die. Our kids are going to watch us die. And who's going to take them home? Mm-hmm. It's morning, it's, it's foggy. <clears throat> And some boat appears. This is a true story that they had not seen. And the guy pulls them, okay, I just said two adults, right, wearing layers and boots, out of the water and puts them back in their boat. Very few words are exchanged. They're so shaken, they don't even realize that the guy just kind of, you know, motors off. And by the time they're like, get their stuff together, they're like, we need to thank that guy. Oh my God, he saved our lives. They looked for him for who knows how long. They never found him. He disappeared into the fog, don't you know? Like, all too quickly. He got his butt in church. You better believe he was saved the next time I saw him. He invited me to his church. I went. And he's like asking me questions about the Holy Spirit. I'm like, that's crazy. He's like, it's crazy. I mean, he was just shaken to his core. But who wouldn't be after something like that? Guys, that's a miracle. That is a miracle. And he knew it. And he, him and his whole family, it was like the Bible, like, he and his whole family were saved, and they were, man. And I like went and sat in church with, with him and his wife. They actually went to a Valley Family Church, and it was really good for them, to tell you the truth. So, props, BFC, and sorry I said your name. But that's a miracle. It still happens. <laughs> Expect it. Ask for it. This dude was changed. Now, we know about the miracle in Acts 2, right? Speaking in tongues. People are hearing them in their other tongues. It's, is it a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing or a miracle of hearing or both? Let's not debate that. It was just a miracle. Instead, let's look at the next lesser-known passage from Acts 19, 11 and 12. This is in the Bible, by the way, and in your Bible, too, not just my weird Bible. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and wow. evil spirits came out of them. Now, that's crazy. But you guys realize God still does stuff like that. You guys realize God can still do stuff like that and it can still be a grind. We have to expect God to act. Look for the miracles. Sometimes you'll get a, a story like my buddy. Him and his whole family are, in, are saved. Sometimes your situation is still going to be tough. But look for God to act and God will act and it will be awesome. So we have be prepared to explain stuff. 
Be prepared to take action. This is going to involve doing stuff, being invested, getting wet in the river, stepping out in faith, doing miracles maybe. Which brings us to our next point, And that is reliance. Reliance. The Holy Spirit factors into both of these stories right at the beginning, and there is a reason. Acts chapter 2, they are waiting for the Holy Spirit, and they get it. Acts 2, 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So who's opening their mouths and actually doing the speaking? The disciples. Who is giving them the utterance? The Holy Spirit. Alright, Acts 19, Paul strides into town, he meets some believers. First thing he asked them, we already talked about it. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were, when you were baptized? And then he baptizes them when he says they haven't. He said, well, you should have. <laughs> because <laughs> we got John's baptism. All right, you're about to get another one. And guess what happens? When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Pastor Anthony, are you about to say if I haven't spoken in tongues and I haven't been baptized? No, and that isn't this message. But please do talk to me later. I believe it is awesome and beneficial and good. But my point from this is only this. Rely on God. We can err in two different directions on this. Sometimes we can think we just have it together. We are awesome. You know you're gifted. You know you're great. You know what you do works. And you're relying on yourself. And that's no good. And sometimes you're so scared and timid that you know all the stuff that you should explain. But you will not step out and take action and actually do it. Because you're not relying on the Lord to come through. Amen. Let me tell you, man. I mean, I was just talking to somebody this week, and they complimented me on my speaking. They're like, you do so good. You speak so good. Like, no, I'm not the best in the world. But I told them, I'm like, you know what my secret is? I've given up trying to figure out why I'm good. <laughs> my secret is, because I, 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 I used to stress about it. You know, people give me all these compliments, and then next week I have all this pressure, and I feel so weird. Like, oh, what, what did I do last week to make it good? And then I felt like the Lord kind of like kicked me. He's like, this is what a gift feels like, man. Like, you're operating in a gifting when you teach people, when they actually pay attention to you, and when they listen to what you say. I make it good. Rely on me. Still do your homework. You still read. You still write the outlines. You still make the slideshow. But rely on me. I'm the one that does that thing. Amen. You don't do it. That's why you don't know what to do. Amen. I'm like, oh, huh. Well, that takes the pressure off. Guys, do that at work. Do that when you're about to have that difficult conversation. Do that when you don't quite feel complicated to do what you feel like you should do. Rely. Because the Lord will come through. Because in the end, only the power of the king spreads the kingdom. That's it. Take courage in the knowledge that even as we speak and act, what we do only works because God works through us. Amen. The Lord was doing incredible miracles by the hands of Paul. Wonderful sentence. Paul was actually using his hands, but he was relying on God to do the miracle. Yes. Last point. We need to be ready to explain the stuff that the world desperately needs us to explain. Because in order to become disciples, there's some stuff they have to know. We have to take action to do that. We have to take action to explain and also demonstrate what this kingdom looks like that we want to bring them into. We have to rely on God. Because we can't do it ourselves, and thank God we don't have to do it by ourselves. The king is going to spread the kingdom, but it doesn't stop with us. In both of these stories is the church. The church is what he's trying to establish. This is the gathering of disciples. 
Listen to this in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's just stop there. So they're listening to what the apostles are teaching them and they're believing it. And they're hanging out. They're praying together. They're eating together. They would probably go to Costco together. If somebody hey. had to go to the laundromat to do laundry, they'd probably do their laundry together. You know what I mean? If two of them had to study and they didn't want to study alone, they'd probably study together. They're being the church. All right, let's continue. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. No, not in a weird communist way. Read Acts chapter 5. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Added to the number of the church. And who wouldn't want to join a community like that? This is part of extending the kingdom. Demonstrating what a bunch of people living the kingdom looks like. You know the smell of bread makes you hungry for bread. Mm-hmm. Seeing the kingdom work makes people want to enter the kingdom. Or hate its guts and want to throw rocks. It'll have both, but it will make people want to join. This is in Acts 19 too. It's implicit that Paul takes the believers away when other people get nasty, and he forms a group that he's pouring into and teaching. And also in Acts 20, when he's passing back through on his way to Jerusalem, Paul actually calls the elders from the church in Ephesus to talk to them. So it says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come. Because he couldn't make it to the whole church, so he said, he talked to the elders, so they give him a message. The church is key. Absolutely key. If you want to be a disciple, and if you want to make disciples. So we're going to put a point on it, and then we're going to close. This is an ant. Whoa. It's kind of cute. An ant is not a win. Ants are not codependent. You don't see ants, like, in two to three ants all the time, like, huddled next to each other with their hands in each other's pockets, right? Ants are tough, they're strong, they can lift up, like, way more than their body weight, they can rip stuff apart with their mandibles. Some of them can both bite and sting, and when they have fights, it looks like Normandy on the sidewalk. They are hardcore, but they're meant to live in colonies. Ants cannot live alone. They're meant to be. This is a bee. Bees fly and stuff. They're neat. They're cool. They have stripes, like little insect tiger things. But bees are not meant to live alone. Bees are meant to live in a hive. A bee cannot make it on its own. Again, they're not codependent. They're not weird. You don't always see two or three bees together in an awkward way. But they do their thing for the community. They're meant to live in a group. This is a wolf. Yes. And this is the problem. We have some Christians that want to do God's work. But before they can learn how to explain stuff, and before they can have the courage to take action and rely on the Spirit, they need to stop being lone wolves. They want to do it, but they don't want to do it with the community. They don't want to do it with friends. They don't want to do it with the church. Guys, the lone wolf image is a lie. The lone wolf has a terrible life. If you read about the lone wolf, they have to avoid other wolf packs' territories because they will be killed. They live their life literally on the fringes trying to stay where the other wolf packs aren't, or find an area where they can be alone. But then they're alone, so they spend their life trying to find a mate. Now, just any mate? No, they have to find another lone wolf mate, because they can't go up to another pack and say, would anybody like to date me? They will die. Also, wolves are not meant to find prey by themselves. So now his menu has shrunk to stuff that one dog can catch on its own. A dog is lucky to ever catch a rabbit or a squirrel, right? This is a hard life, but there's some hope. There's some hope for this wolf. 
Even if the lone wolves track down mates, the odds are against them. Without the support of the pack, they're more likely to die. Hmm. But just because a wolf leaves his home doesn't mean it's gone forever. If a lone wolf can't succeed on its own, it may eventually return to its natal pack. I'm going to end with this. We're supposed to make disciples, right? We need to explain what needs to be explained. We need to take action. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit. But we need the church. And before you can do any of that, if you are a lone wolf, the first thing you need to do to spread the kingdom, to obey Jesus, and to make disciples is go home. Yes. Go home. Return to your natal pack. Prodigal son, go back to the Father who will receive you. Until you do that, you really can't obey the way Jesus intended. Amen. How's that for an ending? I'll give it to good. Justin and he'll make it better. Thanks, guys.